Hello, and welcome to Shoot the Shit, a podcast about buggy. The idea for this podcast came about like so many other great ideas in the history of Carnegie Mellon University. It was late one night at William Penn Tavern, and a group of us were sitting around talking about buggy and how many great characters and stories there were in the sport. And wouldn't it be great if we could record those stories and put them out and share them with the community? Well, this is an attempt to do just that. My name is Will Weiner, and I'm going to be your host. I've had the privilege of interviewing some of the biggest movers, shakers, and behind-the-scenes characters who have shaped Buggy into what it is today. So I ask that you sit back, relax, and enjoy as we shoot the shit. The field of robotics is really synonymous with Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, So many achievements and breakthroughs in the field... Even silly stuff like Tink, the Roboceptionist. So, of course, there has to be a robotic buggy team. And we're going to learn all about that today. I sit down with several members of RoboBuggy uh, to learn about their quest to build an autonomous buggy. How exactly does it work? Uh, Some of the ridiculous technical challenges that you would never have anticipated that they've had to deal with over the years. Uh, What it was like approaching the buggy community and really trying to prove themselves as seriously wanting to be a part of the sport. And where do they see the future of the autonomous division going from here? I learned a lot during this interview, and I think you will too. So let's go ahead and meet this week's guests. Hey, I'm Carl. I was uh, one of the co-founders of RoboBuggy uh, my senior year. I'm Haley. I was the other co-founder of RoboBuggy, also started my senior year. I'm Zach Dawson. Uh, I was the, I guess, second chairman of RoboBuggy after Carl and Haley's uh, joint chairmanship. I started out right when the org started uh, my sophomore year uh, and kept going with it up through my senior year. Hi, I'm Trevor. I uh, joined right after we started. Uh, I led software uh, for three or four years, um, and I joined my junior year. My name is Danny Kwan. Um, I was chair of RoboBuggy in 2017 and 2018, which was my junior and senior year, but I was a part of the org all five years of college. Hi, I'm Vivan. Uh, I was the second software lead after Trevor, and uh, I've also been a part of, or I was a part of the org for uh, freshman through master's year. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining. Really excited to get into this. So many ways, I think the future of Buggy and the present of Buggy is, you know, kind of reflected and reflected and impacted uh, by RoboBuggy. But I guess if we want to start, uh, Carl and Haley, just talk a little bit about how did the idea come together and sort of what was the original birth of RoboBuggy and what did that look like? So RoboBuggy started, RoboBuggy has existed in multiple iterations. We were actually not the first. One of the previous iterations was done as a sort of master's thesis project by a group of people that got passed on to some people in, I think, AEPI. They were working on it, and then they eventually threw RoboBuggy in a dumpster. It never quite ran on race day, and they threw it out after they left. And one day, Jerry Carlson from CIA was walking by a pie and saw RoboBuggy sticking out of the dumpster. So he took it home with him and it sat in his apartment next door to my, or his house next to mine for about a year, uh, just hanging out in the living room. And then uh, one day in Club, I'm sitting there doing homework, Carl's there too. 
I don't remember what we were talking about, but I remember saying, you know what project in RoboClub I really want to work on? I want to work on RoboBuggy. And Carl snapped his head and looked at me and said, <laughs> yes. I remember that distinctly. <laughs> RoboBuggy was mentioned as a project, and I immediately diverted all attention to that conversation. Yep. And it just so happened at the time that I had not known Jerry until that semester because we were doing the same uh, in the same class. Uh, so when Haley mentioned to me that, oh, she has this friend and he found the, you know, the chassis of RoboBuggy in the dumpster. It's in his basement. I, I said, oh, who is that? It's Jerry. Oh, I know that guy. And sort of just like by uh, happenstance that we all sort of knew each other, we would get everything together. So then I went ahead and asked Jerry, hey, Jerry, can we have RoboBuggy? We want to work on it. And he said, well, it's been sitting in my house for a year. I'm not going to do anything with it. So sure, take it. Have fun. So we brought it back to RoboClub, and at this point, it was about halfway through our senior year. And, and what year was this? This, this was, was the end of 2013? Yeah, end of 2013 was when we first decided to start on it. At this point, uh, Build 18 was coming up, uh, the ECE hackathon, and we figured this was a good opportunity to get some parts to uh, get started on RoboBuggy. Uh, so we decided the start to start of a long tradition there. Yep. <laughs> And so we decided to submit a project for just getting RoboBuggy to be remote controlled. So we submitted a list of parts, got approved as most projects do. And word started to get around RoboClub that we were working on this and people started to get excited about it and started saying, hey, I wanna work on this too, this sounds cool. And it kinda just grew from there. So that yeah, was- Yeah, I think, I think uh, Zach even, we had like the, the buggy out, uh, outside the front door of the RoboClub I think he was walking by one day, you like saw it and you said like, is that a robo buggy? And then we got Zach on the project. Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was actually waiting for the club to be opened. I was told to meet there for a colony meeting, if I remember correctly, which is a robo club project that uh, had been going on for a while and the club hadn't opened up yet. And I saw Carl and Haley walk up with robo buggy uh, and I was like, oh my God, is that a robotic buggy? Can I be a part of this? <laughs> yeah, it started with a mix of, of friends and Friends of Carl and I's, but then also other club members just kind of saw it and got immediately interested. Yeah, and then I think at the start of the, uh, I think, yeah, we had Billy Teen, or mostly seniors and juniors who were friends of ours in the project. And then I think that wasn't until the next year that we did recruiting. Right. Yeah, we started to have a lot of people joining up just because they were interested because of Build 18. And it kind of started growing from there. But it wasn't until the very the, the next school year in our master's year when Carl and I were doing our master's that we said, okay, we got to get a bunch of freshmen and new people on the project from the club to make sure that this continues. We realized, uh, I think, during our senior year that uh, it was going to take more than just uh, you know a semester to make it fully autonomous buggy. <laughs> oh yeah. So it like Robo Buggy is a subsidiary, if you will, of Robo Club proper. Like, is that kind of how most of the recruitment happens? Happened continues to happen yeah i believe so. i think so uh that's how i got recruited <laughs> I, I think we we've done a little bit of both we definitely talk at like the uh robo club uh general body meetings and try to recruit from there but uh at least in the past we've also done some tabling out in the cut next to like other buggy teams um kind of following the model that they use and so we recruited some people that way as well it's always been funded primarily through through the robotics club as a robotics club project, like okay. all the other projects. Yeah, funding wise for sure. Awesome. Had any of you had a previous buggy experience before 
joining up uh, with it? Or was it kind of like, oh, I've heard about it, but like, seems weird, a bunch of jocks pushing around. I, I had games. heard about it and I thought people were crazy. And then uh, I didn't do it. And then, then Road Buggy happened and I caught the bug. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't start. I was involved in CIA for about a year and a half before that. I, it, my first two years at CMU, I had zero buggy involvement. It was like, who would do that? Who would get up that early? I have no way, not doing it. But I had a friend in CIA who convinced me to join. So eventually I was like, okay, I'll do this thing. And it turned out to be pretty fun. But after getting involved in RoboBuggy, I kind of, my involvement in CIA was a lot less because I was focused on RoboBuggy. Yeah. I was involved with... Uh... Uh, the beginning of, of Apex back at the res uh, mm. our freshman year and then that kind of tapered off as RoboBuggy took over life and I, I had already always been interested in getting involved with Buggy and I, I tried to get recruited by Apex a little bit I went to one of their like open house days um, but I wasn't super interested because I didn't have a lot of electronics or mm. uh, anything like that and being an ECE that was something I was looking for so uh, RoboBuggy definitely uh, ticked that box for me I definitely went like the other way in the sense that like, it's like your question was sort of like, oh, have you had buggy experience before RoboBuggy? It's like, I had RoboBuggy experience before I had buggy experience. Mm. So it's like, I was doing this and then in senior year, after like all these years of doing like RoboBuggy, I was like, I had sort of a mini existential crisis where I was like, I've never done like vanilla buggy before. <laughs> so it was like, I'll just show it. Like, let me just join Apex and see what happens. And like, it was so, it was a lot of fun. Huge shout out to Apex. They helped us a lot along the way. Yeah, yeah. I think when we, uh, the second year, when we were, we decided to build our own buggy. Uh, we uh, fortunately had friends at Apex, well, Trevor was on our connections with Apex. Uh, we were able to use their space for making a carbon shell, uh, carbon fiber shell uh, buggy for our purposes. Yeah, and uh, some of their team members even helped us make it. So they were a huge help in being open and letting us into their space and not being too, so private that no, you can't. Right. Steal our secrets, yeah. you robot buggy. <laughs> then, then in CIA too, I mean, because we had yeah. some assistance in terms of, uh, I guess, general buggy monocoque carbon fiber knowledge. Yeah, CIA did let a couple of our members come to one of their layups so they could see how it was done before we did it for our buggy. So that was great too. It, it might be worth noting at this point, real quick, that uh, the first buggy that we had that, that Haley and Carl pulled out of the dumpster, Ooh, that yes. was. Uh, that was an old uh, frame and shell style buggy without the shell because it had disappeared a while ago if they'd ever even made one. <laughs> they um, did. It, so did? so okay. there's, there could be an entire like history conversation of RoboBuggy because uh, originally it was, uh, I believe, a, as Haley said, a thesis project by a, a CS master's students, I believe. Uh, and the robot was not called originally it was called uh, E-Epiphany and it had a shell and it was an aluminum L-channel frame buggy that was bolted together and it worked well uh, for a while but after uh, oh, 25 years of age uh, it really showed its age so like the first like year was sort of spent making sure that that buggy stayed operational Mm -hmm. uh, and then we said we need our own buggy, not this one. <laughs> we, we wasted a lot of time trying to keep that thing operational. It was a pain to get it to do anything. 
I yeah. think I was talking with one of the original guys on the project and he was saying that one of their constraints was that it had to be able to be disassembled into the size of a shoebox or something. They were yeah, I remember that. What? They were yeah. storage space and that's why it was bolted together and like terrible and always falling apart. Wow. Oh my god, I didn't realize that at all. That explains why they chose <laughs> L-channelism. Okay, yeah, I mean, that makes more sense. <laughs> I do think but the best thing about that buggy being able to be taken apart though, and we kept for future buggies, is being able to remove the push bar for storage. Yes, that was always... yeah, absolutely. But but no, but that one, you couldn't actually remove the push bar. It was easy to disassemble other than taking off the push bar. Wait, you're, you're right. You're right, yeah. yeah that one had the- That was a feature we made, put into place with the uh, transistor. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was that it because was it was so rusted? Learned. I can't remember if that no, was because it, it was rusted it was, it was or it just didn't it like went down into the base of the structure. Right, right. Oh. Yeah, no, we, we always like, were under one of the tables. You have to disassemble like the entire back end in order to get the push bar out. But, but anyway, anyway, so that, that was like our first buggy that we used for that first year. And then we started building Transistor, which was our second buggy. And that was the one we were talking about with like the, the carbon fiber monocoque design. That's, mm -hmm. that's really sort of reminiscent of all of the other buggies you see running today. And so we had Singularity, that was the, the one we pulled out of the dumpster, we, we named it Singularity, and then Transistor, and then <laughs> but the we, one after we did that. Not, we did not uh, rename it Singularity. I believe it was the, uh, the guys at API who were working on it where it was uh, renamed oh, Singularity. Yeah. I think we kept going with it. Yeah. But yeah, so, so it was named Singularity, then we, we built Transistor, and then after that we went back to uh, kind of frame and shell style buggy with, uh, with NAND. Yeah, NAND had a lot of learnings and uh, very necessary improvements from both Singularity and uh, Transistor. I think it's probably a much better uh, mechanical platform for doing autonomous buggy development on. So right, you're, you have this in the first year, it's kind of like, just get something on the course at that point, remote control was sort of the goal. You know, what were your feelings that was more challenging than it should have been, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, was, that. that was that. Getting that working gave me the interview story that has gotten me like all of the jobs I've ever had. Um, uh, when, to, to, <laughs> to give you some context, when we were going out in the mornings, you know, we had some, we had the remote control thing set up. We were driving around, and you know, before anyone else was out on the course, we were being very careful to make sure that we were not getting into anyone's way. Because uh, we did not want to be any sort of delay for. Uh, well, we were very careful. We did not want to make any other buggy teams angry at us and no, want us to no. go away because we wanted to stay. I purposely sold oh, yeah. tea, coffee, and I think muffins in the morning to make friends with everybody. Uh, oh, yeah. Like rolls at rolls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, for, like we were doing our normal testing, and uh, as we're going around, we you know push off, I think, at like seven. I don't know, 15 or something like that. And for whatever reason, we went down, went up hill one, or no, we pushed off hill two, went down the free roll, and then every time the brakes would automatically deploy, which is, which is only supposed to happen if it lost connection with the remote control or if it received a drop brake signal, which we never sent. And there was, maybe this is separate from what you were thinking, Zach, but we- Oh, this is, this is it. <laughs> this is it, okay we were like struggling to figure out like, what the heck is going on? It, the brakes are just deploying. And I think we had to like call up someone that we knew in the uh, radio club 
just like well, do a but scan. before before we did that we yeah. spent probably like two or three months digging through everything about the system like we were looking at the code we tried adding filters to be like oh maybe it's noise in the radio signal or maybe um the controller every once in a while is like cutting out and coming back in so we added some filtering in and all the different software logic we could think of to try to make the signal cleaner and make it work better so that the brakes didn't so it didn't think it lost connection yep. with the, the controller months and months and months <laughs> And we walked it around the course right before this, not 10 minutes before, mm -hmm. and everything worked flawlessly. We had no clue what was happening. But every day when yeah. you would start running for the actual roll, it would run into a problem. And, yeah. and it, it was consistent every time we went out to rolls. The, the walkthrough that we did in the morning uh, before we did try to do like a free roll would work fine. And then as soon as you did the free roll, it would, it would die. It would freak out. And it, it wasn't always just um, the brakes dropping, too. Sometimes it was like the steering would, would freak out. It would suddenly like veer to one mm -hmm. side or the other. We also had a, an issue at one point where the brakes, rather than just dropping, would just rapidly cycle up and down. And it would use up all of our pneumatics that we used for the brakes. And then we wouldn't have brakes anymore. Um, that was another design improvement we made for transistor was brakes that when they run out of air, deploy rather than go up. Because in singularity, yeah, the I didn't understand that. Yeah. <laughs> that was... The default for singularity was no brakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, God knows why that was the decision. <laughs> Another fun part about this time is we would run a, behind it the entire course. So we would start off yeah. the top of hill too, and you would have to run and do it more than Ironman in order to keep up with the buggy. Well, I mean, you didn't have to be that fast though. Keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, with, with Robo Buggy in like the early days, you could easily well not easily, but you could do all five hills if someone was rope controlling the buggy. Uh, if you ran well, all, all six hills, or the, uh, the because we needed a 2.5. That's true. The buggy the didn't sign. make it all the way down. <laughs> Wait, so let's go back to the story. How did it yeah, yeah, resolve yeah. with the, right, yeah. the radio? <laughs> so, yeah, tangents happens all the time. Uh, so we're just like, what the heck is going on here? Uh, and we, I, I think maybe you, Haley, uh, found someone in radio clubs just like say like, what's going on? We're using this frequency. What's happening? And we discovered that. UPMC, uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, at I think 20 past the hour, every hour, just broadcasted some overly powerful uh, signal to calibrate or sync their clocks across Pittsburgh or across like the area. And it was the exact same frequency as our, as our uh, <laughs> control. So, uh, it just completely overpowered it and just cut us off from the buggy. Holy <laughs> shit! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all we need to do is change the control. Exactly the same. It wasn't technically the exact same frequency, but it was close enough to bleed yeah. into the frequency band that we used, and it would wreak havoc with our control. All that we had to change our 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 frequency and strategy there. <laughs> wow. Who knew? That's just that is... that, that's one of the beautiful things I, I, I loved about working on this project was uh, it gave me a lot of real world experience with the um, doing like embedded electronics because doing stuff in the classroom or in the lab or something, you know, you have a very sterile environment, whereas you take it out into the real world and you get crap like this happening where, you know, you have to choose a different radio because UPMC wants to keep their clock synchronized. <laughs> My day job is the same as Buggy at this point. It's just <laughs> keep on doing the same stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think there's also something else like, no, Zach, you told me about this, I think. Something about the- Is this temperature? Uh, yes. I can tell but you- But that was later in the year. 
That was later in the year. Yeah, that, that was, that's a different story, <laughs> but it, it's, it's a great story. Um, RoboBuddy, because we are, or at, the, at this time, right, because we hadn't been integrated into the role order, and like Haley mentioned, we're trying very hard not to step on anyone's toes and not to get in the way, uh, we would only run the buggy before the formal start of roles. And so that meant that we had to basically be off of the course and done with our day by the time the sun rose. So naturally, uh, it got pretty chilly out there in the mornings, especially kind of uh, in, in you know, November, December kind of timeframes yep. uh, or, or early in the spring. And we had all sorts of issues with temperature affecting the system. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite ones is once we switched our radios, we switched to a, a different radio that was a digital 2.4 gigahertz uh, radio. Uh, and that one worked, worked beautifully, worked well. And we took it out there uh, one day to run on the course and everything worked fine. And you know, we did that for a few, a few weeks. This was on transistor now. And as the temperature started to cool off though, we ran into an issue where we took the buggy out. It seemed to work okay. Uh, it had been sitting out there you know, maybe for, for a little while now. Uh, and we go to walk around the course and the brakes just drop. Similar to what we had seen with, with Singularity where the brakes are dropping randomly. And I, I think like, this was oh, the God, weekend before truck. No, no, this wasn't the weekend before truck weekend. This was this was in the fall. It would happen a there, lot. <laughs> like it, it happened Margaret, a lot. There, we would stage Margaret Morrison. Like, yeah. <laughs> we would stage like, Margaret Morrison at some point. Like get like test everything out. Like okay, everything's working great. Take it outside and like literally as soon as it gets out of the doors, the brakes drop. Yeah, there's there's nothing so frustrating as like knowing everything's working fine and then getting up real early in the morning and then you just have to stand around because what's going on? This thing's not working. So, it was just so, working. So this, this happened as we transitioned into the winter, right? And so when we did the first few rolls early uh, in the year, like right after school started, it was working. But then as we went into the winter, it, it started doing this behavior. And it was incredibly frustrating too, because it, it happened when we were out there and then we took the buggy back inside. We were like, well, something's broken. We're not going to roll today. We took it back inside and we got to Robo Club and everything was working fine again. Um, and so we, we went in and dug into the code again and, you know, tried to, to reevaluate all the stuff that we thought we had solved by switching radios. And at one point, I just got frustrated and I said, well, you know what, maybe it got cold. And I ripped the radio off of the buggy. I hooked it up to an oscilloscope and I looked at the waveform it was generating when it was receiving commands from the controller um, just at room temperature. And I, I, I reported it on the oscilloscope. And then I took it and I put it in the freezer for 20 minutes uh, and I pulled it out of the freezer and hooked it back up to the oscilloscope again. And sure enough, the waveform deformed by something like 10 or 20%. Uh, the oscillator in the radio slowed down when it got cold and it, it distorted the waveform to the point where the software thought that it had lost communication with the controller. Um, so because we put all these safety checks in to make sure like the waveform is exactly what it's supposed to look like uh, and to reject anything that doesn't look that way, um, we were being a little too overzealous. And when it got cold, the controller, because the waveform slowed down, thought that it had lost connection uh, to the RC radio and would drop the brakes. So luckily, once we figured that out, it was a relatively simple fix and that we just uh, expanded the parameters for what we considered good or bad signals. But yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun problem to work through. That problem didn't end with singularity unfortunately i think a few different parts in transistor and nand we were like we think it's the cold we don't know exactly what to isolate we tried sticking things in the freezer and couldn't isolate stuff so sometimes it was just like we can't roll today because we walk outside and the bu buggy stops working so wow. so we operationalized putting the buggy in a freezer at the, after that yeah we needed a giant freezer <laughs> <And> <laughs> we didn't have one
there, there was another temperature issue, if I remember correctly, Carl, with the pneumatics, I think. Do you remember that? With oh, the, yeah, the I think there was like a seal or something. Like it shrunk, shrank the rubber and then the air just leaked out or something like that. I think that may have been it. Maybe something else. A lot of practical problems with just sort of dealing with when finding out what's going on with RoboBuggy. Yeah, I'd say so much of what we dealt with at the beginning was just why do we not understand right. things that we haven't seen before and don't make just just getting things to a barely functional level at the beginning was a lot, almost all of what we were doing. Autonomous was like kind of being thought about in the background, but so much of it was just how do we make the buggy not drop brakes? Right. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. So that's such a challenge when you then stack that on top of having very limited amount of time, having the shittiest times to roll, figuring everything else out. That's, that's wild. Um, yeah, that's why, that's why we needed teams for people work on mechanical, people right. work on software, electrical, and general operations. <laughs> yep. And while all this was going on, I, my master's year, I was assistant chairman on sweepstakes. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had an in there of representing RoboBuggy during the chairman's meetings each week and making sure to coordinate, hey, let's, can we have this time to roll? Is everybody cool with that? So I kind of had a conflict of interest there with uh, sweepstakes, but everybody didn't seem to mind since I wasn't competition. <laughs> so that was, we started to build our relationship with sweepstakes as the year went on and time went on, got to know more people in Buggy, kind of cemented that we're here to stay, we're here to participate, but we're gonna keep out of your way because we know this is serious business. Right. Yeah. I mean, so kind of what was that community reception like, um, you know, initially and then kind of how did it grow throughout the year, a couple years? I mean, initially I think uh, it was pretty good. I mean, everyone I think saw us as a novelty and uh, as Haley said, we weren't competition and we made sure to make, to uh, not get in anyone's way during the normal roles uh, on the weekends. Uh, yeah. And I mean, at first we have the tea, the coffee, the rolls and everything. Right. Uh, I think we made everyone pretty, pretty happy when we got there in the mornings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We were, we were definitely viewed as a novelty initially. And I think over time people started to view us more as like a, a legitimate org that was really, uh, you know, part of Buggy. Um, I know my year uh, as, as chairman after Carl and Haley had, had graduated, you know, there were a few moments where people on, on sweepstakes or other teams would come and, and talk to us and be like, hey, RoboBuggy, is it okay if we do this or, or we do that? Like, we won't get in your way, right? Um, which was just, which was just, it was so flattering for, for me. It really made me feel like we had done a great job of building those relationships because when we first came out, we were terrified that we were going to step on someone's toe and, you know, sweepstakes was just going to go, nope, you're not allowed to do this at all. Yeah, I definitely say that at the beginning, the reception was positive. People were always friendly to us, um, being like, oh, what are you guys up to? What's what's this thing over here? This buggy, oh, this is interesting, cool, good luck, guys. We didn't get in anyone's way, so no one got mad at us, but we were definitely building the relationships at that point. And as people graduated and more people, their entire time in buggy, they remember buggy, be, Robo Buggy being there. Mm -hmm. Robo Buggy's presence just kind of developed to be more strong over time that it, it seems like we built a lot of trust at the beginning because later on RoboBuggy was allowed to be in the role order, which when I heard about that, I was like, no way. There's no way that 
then all the teams agreed to that, especially like the more competitive ones. There's no way they would have allowed RoboBuggy to take up a little bit more of their time and lose a couple roles. No way. I couldn't believe it. But because we had been there so long and we weren't competition and we had built that trust that we, yeah, right. it, was, like even, it was awesome to hear that. Yeah, even the pika chair's heart grew three sizes that day or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> Dude, it's That's like, cool. how can you say no to the wholesome meme that is our organization? Right. Like, we kind of solidified ourselves as the wholesome meme of Buggy. <laughs> there is one thing that I will say here, though. Oh, sorry. Danny, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, by the time I was chair, I think people had kind of gotten used to us being there, and they'd kind of, like, thought it was normal. So, like, me being at chairman's meetings, it was like, oh, RoboBuggy is getting called in the, like, the roll, the roll call at meetings as well. So we were just, like... Mm accepted into being there. And all the other teams were really nice when we were like having troubles. I think it might've been 2017, like the weekend before truck weekend, we had a pretty bad crash um, and we needed wheels. And we asked- Was that when we hit the tree or when we hit the squirrel? <laughs> Either. No, the squirrel didn't do anything. That was when we hit the, the tree. The squirrel video is great though. That's my favorite buggy video. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. I think we hit the curb somewhere, but- That was, that was the curb and then the push bar slammed into the tree. <laughs> tree that, no, that okay. was that was my year too either way i think it was <laughs> we hit but at some point we hit something right before truck weekend um, and i went to the different chairmans and i was like does anyone have spare wheels we can have and <laughs> started like i think we got wheels from three two or three different teams and they were like old hand-me-downs but it was like whatever yeah. we still need these we're going to use these so everyone was really nice to us um and really helpful yeah i think that's definitely been one of the benefits about not competing with the other teams is that we can be friendly with everybody. People aren't as, you don't get this feeling if you go talk to anybody from another team that they're like, oh, you're, I don't want to be friendly with you because yeah. you're on the other side. Everybody's willing to talk to you. And I, I had that also in sweepstakes as being part of sweepstakes as mm. well. And that's kind of something I feel like you don't get in most other orgs in, sweep, in, in the races is that because People are always kind of worried about the secrets and the competitive feeling, but you just don't get that with RoboBuggy. So you get to kind of get to know a lot more teams and the friendliness is a little more open. That's yeah, cool. I, think, I think that helped a lot with this too, was uh, we made a, a commitment very early on in the history of the org to focus on operations and, and like going out and doing things. So uh, very early on, we, we sort of said like, you know, yeah, we might not be able to run autonomous uh, today, but if we, if we can't, we're still going to go out. We're still going to do a role. We're still going to do it in, in teleop mode. And we were, we tried as hard as we could to always be at roles, no matter how many people were, were calling in sick or how far behind the software or the hardware or anything was like, if we could possibly get that thing out there with three wheels and push it around the course, um, even if we weren't collecting useful data or even if everything was in shambles under the hood, like we still wanted to do it one to just get the practice of doing the operations so we could get better at, you know, going out there and going through the process, but two to help build up those relationships and show like, Hey, we're, we're for real about this. We're not just going to come out here one or two times and, and try something. We're, we're in it for the long haul. <laughs> I do think, um, Vivon, your your line there, the wholesome meme of, meme of buggy. I might use that for the episode title. I like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we were saying at one point that uh, Robo Buggy was like quintessential CMU. You got Buggy, the the sport of Carnegie Mellon, with robotics <laughs> sort of merged together and seeing what happens. 
Dude, and combine it with this wholesome throw a bagpipe on there. End up with wholesome beat. <laughs> <laughs> throw a bagpipe on there. That's good. That was, um, yes. We we did say one time we could put some speakers, loudspeakers on the buggy and just like have uh, have it blare bagpipes as it goes down the free roll. <laughs> I, I still maintain that when we go off of a uh, hill two, if we put speakers on, we need to play Jesus Take the Wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do that so badly, but we just didn't have any time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like we got some suggestions for the current Rumble Buggy members. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at this rate, that may be the only buggy we can have uh, next year. Anyways, uh, race day. Speaking of race day, I guess kind of interested. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about the process and some of the challenges through the years, but uh, be interested to kind of hear about race days, like memories, like especially, you know, that first one, 2014. Uh, yeah. And then kind of from there and, you know, different moments that stick out in that. 2014 yeah. was rough. Yeah. yeah, 2014 was rough in a lot of ways. For those that remember, there was a pretty bad accident on the course right before, a few rolls before yeah. we were supposed to go in our exhibition heat. Uh, ambulance had to be called and there wasn't enough time for us to go. And, you know, I mean, got to take care of the safety aspect and people first. So we understood, but of course we were very disappointed. Um, I think we maybe had an opportunity to go the next day, but it didn't work out. So our first year, we didn't actually get to participate in race day, which was a huge bummer, but we also weren't super ready. <laughs> well, in some ways it wasn't, uh, probably wasn't too bad. So that, that was a bummer, but we were determined next year to be extra ready and get our spot on race day. So the next year, we, instead of having the midday exhibition slot, we asked for the first thing in the morning exhibition slot to be the timing heat. There's a little bit of uh, hesitation in that. They're like, well, if you don't make it around the course, how are we going to do the timing heat? Is the timing heat? How do we know that it's working if you crash? Mm. And we said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. It'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that first year around the course, so that would have been the 2015 race day was the mm -hmm. first time we actually rolled around the course and it was teleop then as well i think we i, I can't we try to do thomas at first and then yeah. we realized so it had to change back year. to not that year yeah i think that was transistor's very first year and we only yeah. had yeah. transistor in it. the one where we tried autonomous was when we were wearing red <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, was it was after. it was the green it was the black and green that one was just tele up then it was the red and white and that was uh i'm referring to like the jerseys that we were wearing mm -hmm. uh the red and white was when we tried autonomous and it didn't work and then the next year was uh i think that one was autonomous 2017 was 2017 autonomous. was i think the the like first good full full one yeah but tw 2015 transistor i think had only chalked up I want to say it was either three or five rolls prior to race day. Um, yeah. we, we had just completed the builds and had just barely gotten the electronics in. So it didn't have really any intelligence for any sort of autonomy. It was just like the radio receiver, well, receiver in the servo to steer it. Uh, Zach, that was the year that we took it out the night before or a few nights before. And we uh, did a big push to take it around the course and we, Trevor, that was, a, uh, that was 2016. That was 2016, yeah. Trevor, yeah. yeah. It all blurs together now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old now. <laughs> but 2015 was, was good, though, in that we, we got Transistor out, and we actually did get to run the heat, and it, it went off smoothly, and we didn't crash that year. It was, it was all teleop, and so that was, that was good. It was a good start. 
Yeah, I remember I got to be in the lead truck for that, and it was still super exciting to watch it go around the course for the first mm -hmm. time, even though there's nobody there because it's first thing in the morning, nobody's watching. But it's being announced like Robo Boogie is going around the course, right. and it just—it was still a super exciting moment for the team, definitely for me to see all the thing, all the work that we've been doing over the past year and a half, mm -hmm. actually getting to see the buggy roll down the course on race day, even if it's totally up, even if it's not where we want it to be eventually. It was still right. definitely a huge milestone for us. And then, and, and, I got, mm -hmm. and I got to drive a buggy on race day, which was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Some, Zach, you were the driver. I, yeah, be, be, being a, a six foot tall, like 170 pound male, I never thought that I'd get a chance to drive a buggy on race day. And I did. So that was cool. Within that, when, when you're doing the teleop, are you, because there's someone pushing it, but how are you watching the buggy when you're driving it? <laughs> it's, it's not easy. You're, you're in the follow truck. You're sitting in the passenger side uh, seat of the truck. And usually it's kind of a combination of looking straight ahead out the windscreen and then you have the window open and sometimes you stick your head out the window because when you go through the chute, it's, it's really hard to tell where the buggy is. Um, and that, that's one of the things that uh, in, in 2015 was actually uh, kind of surprising is leading up to race day, we had always had issues with the, the follow car driver getting too far away from the buggy mm. so that it was really hard for, for like me driving at Teleop to know where it was and, and what angle it was at. Uh, especially when there was a pusher there normally because they didn't want to you know run over the pusher or anything um so on race day we told the follow truck driver who had never worked with before like hey stay really close to the buggy it's it's kind of hard for us to see where he's going and this guy was like no more than like 15 feet behind the thing the entire time um so it was it was really great to be able to have like a really clear line and, and actually see where the buggy was but those pushers really had to duck out of the way fast and i guess then kind of as we approach 16 17 talking about race days important question how does the autonomous work like what's the tech behind that are you able to to share that's um, all you yvonne and trevor that is a exactly. that is a good question it works it works 100 percent simulation and clearly it works twice so shut your mouth. <laughs> um, I distinctly remember you guys eating a hay bale at some point. What? Multiple times. Uh, this, uh, we had our important. favorite hay bale. So there is a low-level system which gets re uh, receives commands from our teleoperated controller. Uh, so that has a dead man switch. So uh, either if we lose the connection or if um, the uh, operator tells it to throw the brakes, it will throw brakes. Um, at the same time, our high-level computer, uh, which for the majority of uh, RoboBuggy's existence was a um, Microsoft Surface that we got donated uh, uh, yes. thanks to one of our alums. <laughs> Shout out Interesting. to Matt uh, Seebeck. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. that has a history. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, there, there may or may not be a picture of that uh, Surface having fallen out of singularity and still yep. pushing it, it. It may or may not have been dragged by a USB cable through the chute. It may not have still worked after that. <laughs> so that computer is telling uh, what the high-level system wants for the buggy to do in terms of an angle command. And there uh, is a, a PID controller that's getting us to uh, command our motor to stay at about the right spot. On the high-level system, uh, we have a GPS and sometimes an IMU <laughs> that uh, also had a compass on it. That So the combination of those two would be fused in something called a common filter. 
uh, to give us the position of where the buggy was on the course. Um, and we'd have a set of waypoints and we would uh, do um, a directly steering to the next waypoint some distance mm -hmm. ahead of us. Uh, and you just keep on going until you get to the end. For those that were around, I think it was 2016, but I'm terrible with my years. You'll notice that we always took a left turn at the real beginning of um, race day. Mm -hmm. Like we repeatedly take a left turn and um, on there are no walk. left turns on the course at all, right? Like you never really want to go left. So we didn't realize at the time, but the bug there was that we were too far back because we always started further up on the hill. So we would uh, go into an air mode, which was full left. So that was a, a fun bug. <laughs> that, that bug then also reproduced again, when, but from a different standpoint, when, um, because at, at a certain point, our IMU just like straight up was not working. And, and sorry, so, I actually meant to, to ask it, you earlier, what does IMU stand oh, for? Oh, it, it's effectively just like a way to tell your orientation in 3D space. Oh, okay. Uh, it uh, stands for measurement, measurement unit. Sweet. Think it's like how your phone can know uh, which way it's pointing. It's the same thing. Um, and, and so basically like our, that, that just like straight up wasn't working. So we're like, oh, what, what if we just like use the past two GPS points that we've received and just interpolate that to try and get our orientation. And, but when you're sitting like still for a very long time, like your GPS points are like all over the place, like in a certain little radius of around like, two meters mm -hmm. around you. And so basically like the robot would sit there and it was like, oh, I'm facing 180 degrees left. Oh, now it's 45 degrees right. Oh, now it's straight ahead. Oh, now it's behind. And so then when we would start, it'd be like, Oh, I'm facing behind. I gotta turn left and turn all the way around. <laughs> that that also led to an interesting behavior early on in Buggy uh, when we first started trying to do autonomous runs before we even had the IMU like integrated, was uh, where the buggy wasn't allowed to stop moving uh, because if the buggy yeah. stopped moving, then what what Vivon described would happen. So uh, <laughs> and that's that's where Hill 2.5 really became important was because if it slowed down and bottomed out by the stop sign, it would lose what direction it was facing. So you had to keep it moving. Hill 2.5, where it's very clear that well, what do we have to do? We had to add weights. I think we had to add yeah. like metal, iron. No, yeah, big iron. Singularity. It was a box of bolts or a box of ball yep. bearings i think at the very yeah. beginning with singularity it was a box of bolts which yeah, they had to add weight to make it through the course so there is an optimal weight to get through mm. the course and it is it is not zero <laughs> as much as like a lot of people would like to say you just got to reduce the weight on that buggy as much as possible there is a it, you don't want to drive it to zero though to be fair i mean there's a number of things which could have been mechanically improved on the buggy like bearings wheels air airframe Actually, one of the things I, I really wanted to use RoboBuggy for was to sort of help uh, further buggy design in general. Uh, sort of like, okay, tweak this, tweak that, see what happens, and try things out. You don't necessarily have to worry about putting a driver at risk when trying out some wacky, crazy idea. Then it may potentially open up some design opportunities. Hmm. That, that reminds me of a, of a great story uh, from, from RoboBuggy history. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, um, but we, we showed up to Rolls and for some reason, the city of Pittsburgh had put out one of those car counter things, you know, it's like the wire that you stretch across the road. And when a car drives over it, it counts that, that someone's driven over and everyone was freaking out. Like, can we do rolls today? Can buggies go over this or not? Like, is it safe? We don't know. Cause it was, it was on the free roll and we were doing our course walk at the time with the buggy. And I, I think it was, Trevor was pushing at the time yeah. and I was, yeah. I was driving with the RC controls 
And um, we're just like, well, you know, we could probably take RoboBuggy over it and, you know, see what happens there. And, you know, upon saying this, Trevor just takes it and gives it a big shove towards the, towards the, um, the rope. And, you know, it starts going down the, the back hills and it, it hits the rope and it bounces like crazy because the thing doesn't weigh all that much and there's no suspension. Uh, so it bounces around, but it keeps going, keeps rolling. And I look at Trevor and I go, Trevor, we don't have brakes because we hadn't charged the pneumatic system yet. Um, so it just keeps <laughs> so then going, I got going, my run in for the day. <laughs> and so Tre- Trevor then just has to sprint down the back hills or, or down the down the free roll to catch up with it. And I have to keep running too because if I get too far away, then the remote control will uh, lose connection and it'll just start like swerving in circles. So we're both like sprinting <laughs> as fast as we can to keep up with this thing. And luckily Trevor's pretty darn fast and is able to, to catch up with it and, and stop it. But I think that day we ended up not rolling in uh we end up not doing a free roll like a uh, with a yeah we decided vehicle. not to, but uh, but human buggies wanted to go. It, it was definitely too much for Singularity to take because that thing shook around like I was afraid mm. it was going to shake to pieces hitting that. But yeah, that was Singularity. Also, just to yeah, throw this out there, suspension, good. personal pet desire with robo buggy just to implement <laughs> at some point and make it happen. Ugh, never got around to it. So. Oh, well, vib- vibration caused so much problems with our electronics. Yeah. Like, uh, we had a, a USB cable to connect to the surface, and the vibrations were constantly vibrating the USB cable out of the slot on the surface <laughs> when we connection to the high-level computer. So we, mm. we went through some crazy schemes to hold that in place. There were 3D-printed mounts. There was tape. There was hot glue at one point. There were, I think, neodymium magnets involved at one mm-hmm. point. Like, yeah, I think it matches like, how uncomfortable it is to be a driver and experience all those uh, yeah. <laughs> rapid yeah. vibrations. And it makes me wonder, you know, if we hadn't, you know, possibly dragged the surface by the USB cable, would the USB cable have been less susceptible to vibration? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but, the, but the best thing is, you want to know what the solution was for the USB vibration? Well, you, Go ahead. We turned, we turned the hub from sideways to vertical. <laughs> And that did the most, like, that helped the most. <laughs> like, freaking man months of, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, we've got to hot glue all of this stuff together. Like, we're going to magnet it all together. We're going to create, like, our own locking USB, like, uh, cables. And it's like, no, I just turn it. <laughs> and I know that worked. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, what was 17 like when you did get around with an autonomous role? You know, what were your thoughts going into that day? And then how did it feel to, because um, that you guys were the first, right? Full autonomous role and the rest. So, yeah. I think early on, Epiphany attempted and sort of uh, didn't make it to the stop sign, though I'm not sure about that. And I I've think been they voluntarily stopped at the shoot or something like that. Something like that. I think AE Pi, when it was uh, a project there, a singularity, it, I think it got to the shoots via using autonomy. And I have been told by a friend of mine that, uh, who knew the, the guys there that it had completed a full course autonomously using a camera as its uh, primary input. But yeah, I can't really verify that. 2017 yeah. wasn't the first time, but I think it was the first time on race day, which was why we were like really pushing for it. Yeah, um, I think that's accurate. I checked back on the emails and we actually rolled twice in 2017. We rolled once on Friday and once on Saturday. So on Friday, it was uh, teleop. 
um, teleoperated, remote controlled. And then I remember we were, that, yeah. We were still testing up until that night. We were like taking the buggy outside, still testing it like late at night on Friday night of race day. Um, and as, on, as is tradition for us. And on Saturday, I think like we had a meeting with some of the leadership on the team and we were like, we're going to do this no matter what. No matter what happens on the course, we're not going to touch the remote control switch. We're going to just let it go. And that's what we did. And that's why it was as questionable maybe as it was. Pretty much the only like accurate way I can really describe it is like right before the roll was like, uh, and then right after the roll was, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, cause that, that's what I was feeling at least. You were pushing. I, I was super ecstatic because I was just watching, so I didn't have yeah. to deal with any of the stress, and it was just incredibly awesome to see these guys do what they did. Like, uh, yeah, as, as I think a lot of my watch now was wonderful. Yeah, it was like a lot less. The stress level was lower as an alum, and like the pride of like, look at what these guys did. I'm so happy. Like, was so so strong. It was such a great feeling to see, even though we weren't. We were on, we were graduated. We weren't technically on the team anymore. It was so great to see that what we had taken part of had grown and continued to, to evolve and improve and mm -hmm. have people put a lot of time, effort, love into it. Vivon, were you- it also, it also inadvertently demonstrated just how tough a uh, transistor was as a buggy. Uh, yeah, I think we all probably got nervous when it hit that curb. And it continued to roll, like it flipped up on the curb a little bit, just kept going. Somebody, somebody yeah. pushed it. I think it was like me on hill one, Eric Barrett on hill two, into like a deep hill two or something. And then you did like 2.2. Brad did 2.5. R2, Sean did Howard. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it crashed into the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sean did 2.7. Um, <laughs> and then who did hill three? Tom maybe, and then that I think Vivek did five. Oh, I forget who did four. Despite <laughs> all the the extra pushes it got, it did steer itself the whole time still. Yeah, and hundred percent. That that was part of the hilarity too. That I think why going back to the the meme of of buggy, we can crash and it's funny. That's that does nobody else. Yeah. That's not good when anybody else does it, but when we crash, it's hilarious and everyone's laughing and. We're laughing at ourselves, but we're enjoying it. It's just, it's great. When it, when it crashes and it keeps going, we're laughing at ourselves. There have been some crashes where I have felt terrible afterwards, mm -hmm. but. I think that, for like one extra push. So we had someone stationed near the stop sign uh, in case it bottomed out there. And I, they had planned for me to jump out of the car if it slowed down, which I did. Um, but it crashed one more time and we had one more person in the car, thankfully, who was able to get out and push it just enough to get to hill three. That Thomas run was? Six something. 602. 602. We almost broke six. <laughs> <laughs> that time is uh, still, I think it's still on the Robo Club whiteboard. There's a big whiteboard in the club and I think it's still, that time is still up there to, uh, to this day. Like no. it's written there and then the new one is written underneath it. <laughs> I think we also have the, uh, the teleop record there or uh... Yeah, uh, our teleop record listed there as well. That was like two minutes and fifty. No, no we never, we've never broken three. <laughs> I think that's what we did for teleop. Not according to those slow two minutes, but this is honestly the the C, the buggy alumni site does not have autonomous records on there, and we need to update that. So 
Um, I'll put we, that down we do have way. records in, internally, I think. Do we still keep the rolls log up to date? We did while I was there. <laughs> no, the race day records are, I think, the only ones that go up on the, the site. But we've got those, so we can yeah. share. Okay. Let me see. We've, we've talked about a good bit of stuff. Here's a random one. Um, is there any beef with Atlas? What's, what's the situation like with Atlas? So I think the only beef it arrivals the whole way <laughs> there, there was like one time where like i think it was Robuggy and alice were both on the roll order for race day and i think maybe this is my personal view i think Robuggy was it was going autonomous and it maybe turned to tell you off and then alice was i think entirely autonomous and or something like that i i don't remember uh, probably the other way around because I know, I know that year, like oh, 2017, that was, was the year that, that both teams, it. both teams tried to go for an autonomous run on 2017. They switched after Hill Two, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But like we, yeah, we did yeah, the whole right. way through. Yeah, that was when it something went wrong with their remote control, I think, and it started to go in circles. I, I remember we got frustrated with that uh, that year just because we had just done our autonomous run, and then I think uh, someone in in the booth or something was saying like, "Oh, Atlas is now." Uh, done autonomous run faster than than Robo Buggy. We were like, but they weren't autonomous. <laughs> I think we learned oh. <laughs> throughout the years to work on our PR and let the people in the announcing booth know what we were planning to do that day before we did it. Um, because people would say it was autonomous when it wasn't and say, is it a, like, oh, it's they're just doing remote control when it yeah. was autonomous. So we had, we were like, okay, wait, we need to just tell them because how are they supposed to know? We need yeah. to tell them what, what we're doing so that they know. No, that is much appreciated, especially when you're in those early exhibition heats and it's carnival. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm never in good shape at that time. Um, if I think coming, coming back to Atlas, though, like, I think it's, it's honestly really cool how sort of the two different teams have sort of uh, diverged and approached the problem from two different ways, where it's like, I like to think that like RoboBuggy, it's like we took a buggy and made it a robot and Atlas takes a robot and makes it a buggy where it's like, so we sort of invest very heavily in how do we retain the current platform with like, we're making basically a like bog standard buggy, like that theoretically could be run by any other team uh, and then putting a robot inside of it. Whereas Atlas basically approaches the uh, problem from the point of view of like, okay, well let's like make a platform that could be run as a buggy. So like this is where you saw like baby buggy for example. Right. So it's like you we we wouldn't really think of using a baby stroller because we're sort of focused on the buggy platform, the established buggy platform. Whereas they're sort of experimenting with like newer types of sensors, uh, much higher level or like much more complicated like algorithms and things like that, um, and mostly just like trying to define like what a new kind of buggy like autonomous platform could look like. And I think from the org standpoint, standpoint, um, like when I was going to chairman's, me and the Atlas chair would always be like, do you, do you think this applies to us? Do we need to work <laughs> about this? I don't know. So we were always kind of like going back and forth with each other um, about like what matters in terms of like classic buggy for us. Um, and it was also like very collaborative at some points too. We were talking a lot about like, if our orgs continue growing, like what are some shared resources we could develop, um, things we could work together on? Because RoboBuggy and Atlas, they're both very expensive projects and time-consuming projects. We've always like been on good terms with them. Cool. Yeah, wow. sort of 
going along with what I, I know on. for me right when they started uh kind of showing up to roles and stuff there was some concern on the team about if they would um because we were still in that phase where we were afraid of you know offending other teams there was some concern of like oh what if they you know do something or like has to be in role order before uh they're ready or something like that and get us all kicked out so there's a little concern there but like like Annie said we i think we built up a, a decent enough relationship with them and and you know saw that what they saw that they were you know also approaching the problem very seriously and uh and we were able to you know live harmoniously just sort of going off with what Vivana was saying about our different approaches atlas sort of like made their own platform for buggy where i think we specifically tried to at least uh with our design stay within the general rules of uh buggy in terms of no additional ex uh power source like the only power that's on the buggy is meant for steering and deploying brakes. There's nothing else that's adding energy to the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing to spin the wheels. We want to pass the pencil test. We want to still be a buggy in every other form other than there's no human inside. I think uh, in terms of rules, our longest running comment was um, that our buggy followed all the rules except that the driver wasn't a CMU registered CMU student. <laughs> And then there was a lot of talk about whether or not we could register a computer for a class um, and try and get it registered as a CME student. Um, there is a little bit of precedence to this. I believe Tank, the roboceptionist, is registered. Oh, oh, well, hold on, really? Well, then maybe we should get Tank to drive the buggy. <laughs> no, Alice Buggy is going to start attending 112. Oh, boy. <laughs> Looking look into the future, then, you know, kind of like short term, what are what are some things you'd hope kind of future iterations of RoboBuggy would he be able to do? And then further on, like, do you think we'll have an autonomous uh, division eventually? Like, how do you think that might work and all that? That, so would be, mm -hmm. that would be amazing if there was an autonomous division to go alongside, alongside traditional uh, buggies. That'd be a wonderful, wonderful future for RoboBuggy. I think one of the biggest challenges though with any of the robotic buggies is that usually the knowledge that you need to build to be able to work on, to, to write the, the code that goes into these buggies, you don't get until later on in your undergrad or even master's mm. year. So usually the people writing the bulk of the code are seniors or master's students. And by that time they're excited to finally work on the code and not as maybe not as focused on training some years are better than others but it's really hard to train a, somebody brand new who's learning how to to write code how to write complicated code that's the biggest hurdle is that it's hard to get new members involved in the heavy stuff right away other than the building of the buggy that's always easier to get into there's also you also run into the I, people losing interest in the topic. Of course, right around when we were doing, when we started RoboBuggy, everyone's all excited about autonomous vehicles coming out and everybody wants to see them come out. They think are, they're happening in two years. Tesla's got autopilot. Yeah, and Uber was coming to the uh, TOC and you know, their Ford and other, other people had. Year, actually. It was Sorry, definitely the, the hype topic at the time and still is to an extent, I think, but then when we succeed for the first time at having an autonomous buggy, some, suddenly I think the problem maybe became a little less interesting to some people because, oh, so they already figured out how to make it autonomous. What am I going to contribute to the product, project? And if you lose the novelty, you can lose a lot of interest. And I don't know, maybe Vivan and Danny can comment on whether they saw that happening more or not after the first autonomous role. But I think 
maintaining interest long-term is the first hurdle to tackle even beyond growing it into something more is how do we retain interest and keep people wanting to do this and how do you get freshmen involved exactly no that that's a huge thing because it's like sort of by the nature like kind of like what Haley said like by the nature of the software team and like what we work on it's like I I actually didn't formally learn about this stuff uh literally until my master's year so like literally the last year of CMU it's like I learned oh so that's actually what the math is behind this stuff that I'm writing and like if, if I had kind of even glanced at that as a freshman it'd be like immediate like I'm not doing this. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, how do you sort of keep them interested? It's like, you can, sure, you can kind of give them like side projects and things like that and like infrastructure things to do. But that's not really like the juicy bits of the history, like of what you want to work on. But at the same time, it's like, can't, like, there are prerequisites to working on that sort of thing. So it's definitely super difficult. It would also be a balancing act between teaching people and uh, working on the system. Some weeks yeah. you'd have 30 people who would show up for the first time interested in software, which is great and exciting. But then you were like effectively teaching them, like, this is what a for loop is. Uh, this is how message passing works. Um, and if you do that for your entire meeting, it's hard to, you know, make progress on how to tune your covariances. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is just me as a not software person, but I don't kind of love to see more teams doing like just robotic buggies in general, not necessarily autonomous buggies. Um, just because I think that's like the very first step and a lot of people kind of dismiss it as, oh, it's easy. It's just like a remote controlled vehicle. There's not even like any powering anything. That's, that's easy, but it's really difficult. And I think it'd be really cool to see more teams and more groups doing that and more focus on that because it's kind of the first step. Yeah, um, I, I, think I agree. Having like an RC league or something like that would be a good transition point to having a, an autonomous group because that there is a lot of difficulty in making just the mechanics of it work. Um, like Danny said, it, it seems easy, but there are actually a lot of really big problems with building something that runs over you know Pittsburgh roads and has to you know have enough momentum to actually make it around the course. And then the other thing too that. Uh, Trevor talked about sort of the difficulty in, in retaining um, software people in, in Vivon, but the there's that same issue with the the other disciplines. So we, we normally had sort of like a mechanical, electrical, and software team. And the mechanical and electrical teams, you know, once we get the the buggy built and working, you kind of hand it over to the software guys and they yeah. tinker with it and, and tr- tune their algorithms and all that. And But really, you know, they don't really want the buggy to be changing. Like they don't want you to dramatically yep. change the the mechanical design or change the way the electronics works or anything because they're just trying to get their code working. And so that kind of leaves the, the electrical and the hardware folks to kind of sit on their hands a little bit. So I think we did a relatively good job with that and that we were always kind of, you know, building the new buggy in the background. So the mechanical folks and the electrical folks had a new project to be working on while the software team had kind of like about a year-ish with kind of a stable buggy that was just kind of being maintained. Well, this is yeah. why I really like the, the design of NAND because you can get that hardware to a stable point where, you know, software can take it and do what they need to do, but you can at the same time, uh, because it's now a modular design, you can swap out, you know, brakes, uh, axles, wheels, steering, all the different components you can try out. You could uh, have mechanical electrical continue to be involved and do new things as they want, uh, even while software uh, works on a stable, uh, hardware platform. 
there was also a struggle about uh, what, where you should fix things that were problematic, but you could deal with, or you should try to advance the overall system where uh, whenever a new crop would come in, they would want to rewrite portions of what the old group did. And it becomes difficult because you're moving so many different parts. And that's something I think a lot of projects at CMU uh, get plagued by is uh, the new members come in and they go, oh, well, I really want to try this thing um, to, to you know, remake this in, in a different way. And it's like, yeah, that, that's great. Maybe it'll be better. But also, if you finish that project, you're not really any further along in the, the grand scheme of things. So, If anybody's interested in joining RoboBuggy, uh, I believe it's still going. And uh, please go <laughs> join. We want to see this uh, grow. And uh, Ooh, we want to come yes. back and persuade you. <laughs> There's definitely opportunity to go ahead and do it yourself all over again. Because that's I think that's part of the fun of it, though, too, is yeah, everybody's reinventing the wheel, the buggy, like the knowledge doesn't get passed on very well by nature of just being like the last one year or two that people can contribute to certain parts. But part of it is, it's a it's, part of it being a RoboClub project is a tool to learn about these systems and do a lot of engineering work. And it's okay if the wheel gets reinvented and it doesn't ever make a ton of progress because people are, it's, it's a good learning tool. This was sort of my philosophy the whole way through is sort of like, because a lot of the software and like a lot of the um, the filtering that we wrote was like all sort of custom and like from scratch. And like, it was, it was basically like me looking at like the, these formulas, like all of this sort of probability and stuff, and then just implementing it myself. Um, there's a ton of libraries out there already that will just do that for you, plug and play. But my sort of philosophy of that was like, sure, I could go ahead and like plug those two together. But then at the end of the day, like, I don't really know anything about how this is working. I don't know how to diagnose whether it's going wrong. I don't know like exactly like how to fix it. Um, whereas with like custom uh, stuff, it's like, sure, you have to take a lot of time to actually write it. You have to make sure that it is actually correct. But at the end of the day, like I, I, I walked away from the project knowing so much more about the intricacies of like robotics. During I think it was fall of 2017, there was uh, within sweepstakes a rules committee to kind of revise some of the rules. Um, and so while that was happening, we kind of thought, hey, this sounds like a good chance to maybe get some of our stuff set in stone on the rules book as well. Um, so we kind of joined in on that and tried to get um, like some basic definitions of robotic buggies in the books um, and as well as some time or like dedicated time for RoboBuggy to roll, um, both on race day and during rolls. Um, because while we had kind of the goodwill and really good relations with sweepstakes in our iterations, um, we kind of wanted to make sure that that was available for the future. Yeah, I think future of robot buggies is definitely, especially from an alumni perspective, of just wanting it to continue. We don't want it to stop. We want people to keep working on it, more people to be interested in it, to be able to continue to be a part of race day. But as far as buggies getting totally advanced and running at the same time and collision avoidancing, I don't, <laughs> I think we're a long ways from that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's really even the goal of, of RoboBuggy. It's, I think a lot of us in, in this conversation even have jobs working on autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles or in robotics today because of our experience on the project. And that's, to me, that's where I got the real value of being part of RoboBuggy yeah. is that all that engineering experience and great time meeting lots of friends and a lot of the people that come, I've come back to Carnival every single year because of the relationships 
we formed to see everybody from RoboBuggy again and again and again. Those are the only people that are that were still there for a long time that I could come see, and now everybody's graduated. <laughs> but it's that will, that's what was most valuable to me more than than having a buggy be fully autonomous, although very fun. Yeah, I think at least for me, when, when I was chairman, it was, it was always trying to strike that right balance between like, yeah, we want to make something that, that works, but also, you know, this is meant to be a learning project. It's meant to be a place where people can come and, and pick up skills and, and, and have fun while they're, while they're doing it. And it's, it's a really tough balance to, to strike. Um, but I, I think that we did a, a decent job of it. I know I learned a lot from there and I also had some some really great times. Uh, there's one time after crash, we we're all in uh, in the shop at midnight when the power went out and uh, kept yep. working on it using flashlights on cell phones and the, the <laughs> lights on the ends of drills so that we could be ready for the next day's races. Um, why we didn't have a regular flashlight. We had to use the light <laughs> on a drill to continually see something that we were trying to fix on the buggy. Yeah, that was that was quite a night, but it, it was a lot of fun, and I I really enjoyed my my time with the team, and I, I, I that's kind of what I, I hope for in the future is just that you know whether we get to a state where we have you know three uh, autonomous buggies all running at the same time competing against each other, or if it you know kind of stays the way it is now, just so long as people are are keeping up with the project and continuing to have fun and and learn these skills that uh, have proved so important for for me and and you know some of the other people on this call and their Lives. Yeah, I mean, one thing I always like to ask, I, I think we're, we're close to the end, and I think actually, Haley, Zach, you both kind of answered it as sort of, you know, beyond like the impact on the sport or whatever, like how has Buggy impacted you or like what do you see as the biggest takeaways? I mean, not um, the same. I would, oh, yeah, go ahead. That's fine. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of my career uh, came out of Buggy. Uh, so there's definitely that, and it's something that's always fun to go back to Carnival for. I work at a startup now, and if you think of what uh, Buggy was like when we were on it, it was kind of like a startup um, where we had you know demo at the end of every year. Um, so I think it taught a lot on both being practical and you know it's a balance a lot, and also uh, you know learning how this tech stack works. Um, and you make great friends, and it was a great experience. Going off of what Trevor said, I uh, the job that I'm currently in, I talked about RoboBuggy during my interview, uh, and I'm pretty sure that that's kind of what what clinched my my getting the, the job. Um, it just taught me so many great skills. And, and for me personally, and, and something I still use in my, my job today is it taught me how to take sort of the, the classroom knowledge that you learn and kind of the, the clean lab setting and, and apply it to real world environments where, you know, things are vibrating, things are cold or hot, or, uh, you know, maybe the, the signal integrity isn't great, um, or you have to deal with unexpected uh, circumstances. Yeah, I think I got Something similar for, uh, similar to what Trevor and Zach got out of the got out of the, got out of the project with uh, just sort of coming to a better understanding as to when it comes to like a team sort of a team project like this where there's so many systems that are interacting that need to work together and have to you, know, you have to pay attention to how this all comes together not just like in your own not just your own little section of the project but how everything uh, needs to integrate. I think I also learned like a lot of the technical skills we're talking about, but um, one non-technical thing is um, just figuring out, and one thing that I learned was uh, like learning how to make the big decisions for a project, whether that's deciding that you're gonna crash the buggy to go around autonomously, or like trying to decide whether or not when is the t correct time to make a call of whether or not we are gonna be able to roll the next day. Um, I think one time we ended up staying up all night 
um, trying to machine some parts after a crash, um, and we still didn't make it. And we like walked out to rolls after pulling an all-nighter and said, we can't roll today. Um, and so it's kind of like if we had made a bigger decision earlier, maybe um, kind of evaluating whether or not you can roll or whether or not you can make the big decision or make something work. Um, so learning how to make those decisions, I think, is something that the project really taught me. Yeah, I think I definitely learned a lot of project management skills being one of the chairs of Rubble Buggy. Having started out the first year, I was writing some of the code, working on Build 18, working on the technical stuff, but quickly transitioned into more setting up the meetings, coordinating the sweepstakes, making sure people, new members had something to do. And now that's kind of, I've replayed that in my professional life um, a little bit. And I think even, even beyond that, from a social aspect too, both being in RoboBuggy, but also being in sweepstakes, prior to being in sweepstakes, and I don't think sweepstakes was the only thing that did this, but I was mostly friends with people who were very similar to me. Um, nerds in RoboClub who like video games and anime or whatever, all the same stuff. But then being part of sweepstakes, I met a lot of people across campus that I would not have met otherwise. Um, people in fraternities and sororities or in different buggy orgs or just people that were very different from me and realizing that those friendships can grow too. It's like you don't have to have similar interests to get a close friendship with somebody. And I found that there was a lot of people that I maybe earlier in college would have thought, no, I don't want to be friends with them because we don't have anything in common, that I really grew to appreciate that other people were really cool people in very different ways and to grow my friend circle more <laughs> outside of just my interests. And that's definitely stuck with me today. My, so my biggest takeaway from the project, and I guess I don't, I don't want to sound like, like too cliche here, but I guess it's like the one of the biggest things is like it uh, that I took away was sort of how to dream big, but deal with the harsh realities of the real world, in the sense that like every single season, like you, you start out with like a super rosy outlook of like I want to do this, like I want to like make this like collision avoidance, I want to make this like have one of the best lines like in the goddamn world, like I want to have this be like I want to have our pushers pushing like two thirty like. We're, and we're going to do all of this by winter break. Like, it's going to go so well that, like, Farnham himself is going to push Hill 1. It's going to be amazing. And then and then you kind of start to work through it, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe we aren't going to do that. Okay, maybe we aren't. Like, how can I still make this, like, as good as I can? Like, how can I still make this, like, satisfying? And, like, how can I still make this work? Yeah, I think part of being chairman was, uh, like, balancing, like, not being the party pooper when everybody's like, we're going to be do all these crazy things by race day and we're going to be autonomous and have collision avoidance. We're going to have this or that and be like, no, you're not. But only saying that to myself and like keeping people excited and interested and saying like, I'm going to support you and I'm going to get you what you need, but I'm also not going to be mad at you if you don't meet your own ridiculous goals. <laughs> if anyone wants to see these buggies, I mean, yeah, they're in RoboClub and I mean, the original singularity is down in the robot museum and Neil Simon whenever people are allowed back on campus. Oh. <laughs> well then, uh, thank you all so much for joining. Absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, you'll be able to hear this Sunday. So thank you so much. Have a great night. And thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I really felt like that was one of the episodes I learned the most, uh, just about a bunch of things. So I hope you all felt that way as well and enjoyed it. Um, 
interesting time. This is uh, what we're calling the final episode of the first season of Shoot the Shit. Um, it was really a lot of fun putting this together. Learned a lot. I'll try and bring it back uh, early next winter. I know we have received a couple other um, inquiries, uh, so we'll start adding those to the queue if you would like to be involved or just give any feedback on uh, this episode of the series. Uh, you can go to cmubuggy.org slash chat, join our Discord, and share your feedback. Um, may have a couple special episodes in the interim, but otherwise we're going to take a bit of a hiatus uh, and kick things off uh, in 2021. So I thank you so much for listening to this initial um, series of episodes. I hope you had fun. I hope you learned stuff. I certainly did. Um, once more, I really need to thank the Buggy Alumni Association, all of our guests, uh, Rachel Schmidt, who has done a lot of the logistics and also a lot of the editing on these later episodes could not have been possible without her. Uh, also want to shout out uh, Ben Matsky by name, done so much for the buggy world, but also really was a lot of the initial push to get this going, uh, and Wichner as well with some good recommendations for topics and connections. Uh, so again, we're going to take a bit of a break, but um, keep listening. I don't know, tell your friends who like buggy to uh, listen to these, and we'll be talking to you again in 2021. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Shoot the Shit. I'm Will Weiner, and uh, you'll be hearing from me sooner than later. Man, I'm pushing a buggy uphill five And I'm hoping I don't take a nosedive We were aiming for 203 We wanted to make history But if I missed the push but we would get disqualified But if I missed the push but we would get disqualified And yes I missed the push bar and we got disqualified